Colossians chapter 4, I'm sorry, I'm looking for just, just one word, really. But Colossians 4, in verse number 1, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue in prayer and watching the same with thanksgiving. With all praying also for us. Now Paul's going to give them a prayer request. This is what I want you to pray for me about. That God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. If you want to flip back a couple of pages to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 19. Well, verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And watching therein too with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me. Pray for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Paul said, when you pray for me, would you pray that God would give me utterance? Utterance. Interesting word. That I would know how to utter the gospel. That I would know how to preach the gospel to the places that I go. I, I want to talk to you tonight a little bit about missions. And we just had missions revival with Brother Danny Farley, and he emphasized the aspect of giving in missions. And, and, and I've been burdened that we keep missions ever before us. That missions is not a one-time event that we have it at missions conference, and then we don't say anything else about it. Missions need to be at the forefront of our hearts and to our minds. And tonight, I'm, I'm not going to preach to you. I'm not even going to give you a I'm not even going to teach a Bible passage, but I want to talk to you about one of the challenges that a missionary has on a foreign field. And there'll be several takeaways that you can take from this tonight, but generally it is to understand the complexity of witnessing to a foreign culture and knowing how to pray for missionaries. Most of our prayers for missions is a very vague, generalized, Lord bless all the missionaries type of praying. Even if we get a little bit more specific, it's Lord bless this one and bless this one and bless this one and turn the page and bless this one and bless this one and bless all of these as well. But, but how? how? How do we want to pray for a missionary to be blessed? Even tonight, I, I prayed for some missionaries when we had, had time for prayer. But, but, but rarely are our prayers informed prayers. And if our prayers are not informed prayers, then how can they be effective or fervent prayers? How can you pray for their needs if we don't know what their needs are? And so I believe as a church, we need to be more engaged. We need to be more informed as to what is going on in the lives of the missionaries that we support. Now, there are ways that we can pray for every missionary across the board and it fits everybody no matter where they are. We, we can pray, we can pray for their health, we can pray for financial support, we can pray for fruit on the fruit on the field. It don't matter if you are in Montana or Mordova. That kind of works for everybody, right? But 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 then each missionary has specific needs. And I've been guilty just as much as you 
as not knowing the specific needs and knowing how to pray for those specific needs. One of the things that I, I would love to do, and maybe somebody would take this on, I would love to create a prayer list that we share needs with on Wednesday night and then build a prayer list of specific needs that our missionaries have, and, and it's easy to create it, then you got to maintain it and keep it updated. A missionary, a missionary faces all kinds of challenges, all kinds of challenges. Uh, deputation, deputation. You ought to thank God that you've never had to go on deputation, all right? In their office, and, and nobody has an office phone or landline, you got to get their cell phone, and, and, and so, so it's, it's, it's changed a lot. I remember when my wife and I started as field reps for Victory Baptist Press many, many, many years ago. Then the first month that we started on the road, our total offerings for that month was $500. My phone bill for that month was $500. We called and called and called and called and called. Called a hundred pastors. They have deputation. And then when they raise the support, they've got to move to the field. They have to adjust to a new life as foreigners. And they have to face, you're going to lose some of your precious rights when you go to another field. There's the challenges of working with another missionary. Sometimes you see very little fruit for the first few years. But then you've got to raise your family and you've got to school your children. You have the separation from the family back home. And then there's finances because as soon as you go to the field, somebody's going to drop your support. And then the church is going to call a new pastor they're going to drop your support. And then you're going to get malaria and there's all kinds of sicknesses and, 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 and then you're starting a new work from nothing. There's no proselytes to come and help you build the church. No, it's, it's starting. There's a lot of challenges. And of course, a missionary, he goes to the field primarily to preach the gospel. And so they began to witness in the course of settling in in their new... Most people in Milton could give you some version of the gospel. But what if you were in a village where the name Jesus Christ was not even known? We, we were in villages in Bangladesh a few months ago, and if we had stood up in town and had quoted John 3.16, most of the people in that village would have had no idea what we was talking about. They would have never heard that. So you've got a different direction with the rich and the same answer because every person doesn't have the same question in his heart. A Catholic does not believe what a Jehovah's Witness believes. And, and a Mormon has a different set of beliefs than a Muslim. And an unsaved Baptist has different obstacles than a Buddhist. And you can't just run them all down the Roman's roads. You may have to take a different approach. One gospel, one gospel, one truth. But it has to be presented to each person to touch their heart and to break through the religion that each person believes. There's a challenge in presenting the gospel. Next Sunday, we have Brother Tony Wood that would be preaching for us. Lauren's dad and have the wedding on Saturday, and he's going to stay over and preach all day on Sunday for us. He's going to a predominantly Muslim country. And you understand that he's not going to start, his church, start a church his first month there. He's not going to go and preach on the street where he's going. That's not going to work there. He's got a lot of laying the groundwork and laying foundation and building relationships and, 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 and building trust. And, and here's the thing about it. He has to deal with the Middle East mindset. He knows how to know how they think and how they process information and the questions that they have in their heart. One of the blinders that we have as Americans is we see everything from an American or a Western point of view. And here's what we do. We tend to think that the rest of the world thinks like we do, likes what we like, values what we value. 
And sometimes we even read the Bible from a Western or an American perspective. But the Bible wasn't written from a Western mindset. The Bible was written from a Middle Eastern perspective. And the culture of the Bible is much or was much different than, than the culture that we live in. And you can't interpret the Bible from a strictly Western view. One of the principles of hermeneutics is, is manners and customs. And the missionary in a foreign culture has to know not only the culture of the Bible, he has to know the culture of the people that he's preaching to. So here's what I want to get to tonight. I touched upon this many months ago and I want to expand it tonight. Sociologists have, have divided the world into three primary worldviews. It goes deeper than the food that you eat and the clothes that you wear. But it goes to a world view, an ingrained view of the world that has been shaped by thousands and thousands of years of culture. Worldview is simply how you view the world around you. For example, in America, if you were a, a, a black teenager that had been raised in an inner ghetto city like Chicago or Harlem, you probably would view the world differently than these young men sitting here on the front pew. You would just, you would just believe differently and think differently. Have you ever heard they, they look at life or the world through rose-colored glasses? They simply say that's their perspective. Somebody sees the glass half full. Somebody sees the glass half empty. They have a different view of life. So in different parts of the world, if you travel, entire cultures uh, around the world sees life, sees the world in different lights than what you and I do. And tonight I'm going to give you three worldviews, and, and I'm doing this so that we can help understand a little bit of the complexity of witnessing in a foreign culture that the missionary faces. Now here's what I need you to know, that, that, that I'll give you these worldviews, but you need to understand that no culture or no group thinks exclusively in terms of that worldview. There are elements of all three in every culture, but one will be a dominant way of thinking. Illustrated like this. How many of you are right-handed? Raise your right hand. Well, it's most of you. How many of you are left-handed? Raise your left hand. All right. Now, those of you who are right-handed still use your left hand. If you are left-handed, you still use your right hand. But there is a hand that is dominant. There is a hand that is stronger. There is a hand that you automatically reach out with. There is a hand that you favor. And so, so what we want to do is we want to understand the dominant way of different thinking in the world. There is a way of processing the world around us, not to the exclusion of other views, but there is a way that is dominant. I'll give you three of them, all right? And here, here's, here's what they are. The first worldview, and you would be most familiar with this, is, 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 the, is the worldview of guilt and innocence. Goes in innocence. Now, now, now I will tell you this. I will tell you this. That as I go through these, I will tell you where they all trace back to. They all trace back to the Garden of Eden. I believe that you can trace every lie that man believes, every opinion in his mind goes back to the fall. The fall corrupted the mind of man. 
And Satan has exploited that to blind his eyes to the gospel. And I believe that you'll find the seed of all three of these all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and I will demonstrate that to you. For example, guilt, innocence. When Adam and Eve disobeyed in the Garden of Eden, they immediately knew that they had sinned. The Bible says the eyes of them were open and they knew. They knew. The first realization was the realization of guilt. They have disobeyed the one prohibition that God had placed upon them. Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived. Both are guilty and disobedient. The dispensation of innocence is ended. It now begins the dispensation of conscience where every man judges himself by his conscience that tells him what is right and wrong. Now, in the Western world, in the Westernized world, the dominant view of life is seen through the lens of guilt and innocence. North America, uh, a lot of Europe, uh, Australia, places like that. And, 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 and the baseline for how we process life is by law, right and wrong, good, bad. Guilt, innocence, that's what we understand. Now, now I would tell you that Satan is working hard to pervert that. To destroy our concept of what is right and wrong. Our society has blurred the line between right and wrong so that good becomes evil and evil becomes good. And now in our society, you can't say that something is wrong definitively. That goes against the very grain of our culture. Cancel culture. Cancel culture is to stop you from saying something is wrong and something is right. The whole transgender insanity that we are facing now. And you read the news online and, and, and every day it, it is something else. There are people that have been fired from their job because they won't use somebody's preferred Pronoun. That's insanity. The reason why it is insanity to you is because you view life from right, wrong. Law, justice, good, bad, guilt, innocence. We operate by a concept of right and wrong and rules and law. So in our society, we place a strong emphasis on individual responsibility and justice of law and fairness. We have so many laws on the books that you can't count them, much less know them. That's the dominant worldview of the Western world. So when you witness to somebody in the States, when you witness to your neighbor, you're talking about how the sin is a transgression of the law. You are guilty of sin. Now that's true no matter what part of the world that you live in. But that resonates with the Western mind because every other part of his life is shaped by guilt, innocence, paradise. You're driving down the road, minding your own business, paying no attention to the speed, and up ahead, you see a police officer sitting in the medium. You instinctively take your foot off the gas and put your foot on the brake. Instinctively. And then you look at the speedometer to see if you are speeding. Why do you do that? You don't want to be found guilty of speeding 
because you are aware of the fine that you have to pay. It is ingrained into you. We believe in established law. We believe in equality before the law, the presumption of innocence, the due process, civil rights guaranteed by, by the Constitution. If you are in court, the only one decision is are you guilty or are you innocent? That's the Western mindset. That's not the mindset of all the world. There's a second world view, and that's fear and power. Now again, that goes back to Genesis 3. Listen to Genesis 3 and verse 8. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. The fall of man not only corrupted the heart of man with guilt, but it filled his heart with fear. His guilt shattered his peace, so Adam hides from God because he fears the consequences he will surely face. He had never felt fear before, but now fear dominates his life. You will find that in much of the world, that view of fear Power is more dominant than guilt and innocence. They're guilty of their sin. But the thing that plagues their mind the most is not that they are guilty, not that they have violated the law, but they, they fear what the gods are going to do unto them. When you got saved, the most dominant thing that you wanted was forgiveness. Please forgive my sins so I am not seen as guilty before God. But there is a world out there that is more concerned with the fear of the gods than they are the guilt of violating a law. Tribal areas, South America, Papua New Guinea, South Pacific Islands, the Brazilian Amazon jungle. They're dominated by fear. You'd never walk into a mud hut in Brazil and see a stack of law books. They don't have all the laws written down like you and I do. And they don't have due process and presumption of innocence and all of that that comes with an orderly system of law. But what grips their heart and their superstition is a fear of the unknown. You're not superstitious, but they are superstitious. And their superstition is reality to their heart. What they, they, they fear, they fear the spirit world and they fear the unknown gods and they are superstitious and they, they worship everything from, from cows to trees because they're trying to appease some unknown god that may cause them harm. You don't live like that. You don't think like that every day. That's how a lot of the world lives. That's how a witch doctor can hold sway and control over a village. Because they've been programmed for thousands of years to fear the spirits, to fear the gods, to fear bad karma. So they pay money to a witch doctor because they think he has connections to the unknown, the unseen spirit world, and he can protect them from, from evil things happening. That's why, that's why there are places where a child, a baby, can be sacrificed to appease the gods. You wouldn't do that. 
But they do it because fear is more dominant to them than guilt. They may know in their hearts that it's wrong to kill a baby, but fear is more dominant than guilt. They excuse the guilt or even deny the guilt that it is wrong because their fear is the dominant view of the world. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. So there's guilt, innocence, there's fear, power. And then the third worldview is shame, honor. And again, back to Genesis 3. Listen, listen to Adam. He said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The word naked shows up three times in Genesis chapter 3. We associate nakedness with shame. So the fall brought shame upon man. He is guilty. He has violated the law of God. He now fears the consequences of his sin. And he is ashamed of his nakedness. And the first thing that he does is he makes aprons of fig leaves trying to cover his shame. You will find that this shame, honor, is the dominant worldview in places like Asia, the Far East, the Middle East predominantly. They live by a code of honor and shame. We, we live by a code of laws. That's what we live by. We live by a code of laws. Did you know in the Muslim world, they live by a code of honor? Code of honor and a code of shame. It's more important that you uphold your honor than that you obey a law. Honor is everything to them. We live in an individualistic society. What you do affects you. It doesn't affect me. But in the Middle East, it's more communal. And one of the worst things that you can do is to bring shame to your family or to your community. They, they value hierarchy in a family and they hold to this code of honor. And in this group identity mindset, what one person does reflects upon the group. So an individual achievement brings honor to the whole group. So if your child goes off and is the first one to get a college education, then that brings honor, prestige to the whole family. But then if one person brings shame, it causes shame, then the whole group is shame. Right and wrong are defined not because of a law, but in the terms of giving or taking away honor. The moral issue is secondary. The honor is first. So it is estimated that hundreds, if not thousands of women are killed by their own family members in Middle Eastern countries in honor killings. You heard the phrase? Last August, last August, a... Muslim man in Dallas, Texas was convicted of capital murder. He actually committed in 2008 and he ran for a long time and he finally was apprehended and they finally convicted him guilty of two counts of capital murder. It was his teenage daughters that he shot to death. What would cause a man to shoot his teenage daughters to death? He killed his daughters because they were dating infidels and in his mind they were disgracing the family. They were bringing shame to the family. Oh, he knew that murder is wrong. But what's more important to him is honor. Honor, bringing shame to our family. We, 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 be, we would be horrified at honor killings. But in Pakistan, it is acceptable because that's how they view honor. If shame is brought upon a house, it is acceptable to put to death the object of the shame to restore honor to your house. You can justify stealing something, but you can never justify shaming someone. 
when we were in Bangladesh again, we visited these river churches and we would go up the river in the boat and we would, we would sop and, at a mud bank and get out. And at every church that we visited, it was embarrassing to us. But at every church that we would visit, they had the church that was on the banks of the river. And they would start playing music, trumpets and drums, as, as they saw us coming. So we could hear half a mile up the river, we could hear this music playing. And, and we would get out, and, and they put us on those little carts, and they paraded us through town, and then they put these flower things on us, and, and they threw flowers on us. And, and you would have thought that we were kings and princes coming in. And, and to be honest with you, that was embarrassing. That's, we, we don't know how to handle that, but that was their way of showing honor. That, that's what they do in those countries. It would be worse for you to, embe- to, to embarrass them than to steal with them. You, you could claim that you had to steal to feed your family, but, but it is unacceptable to dishonor somebody in a rank that is higher than you. They operate on shame. Do, do you see how that different parts of the world has a dominant worldview? And that's just an introduction to it, but it's enough to make the application. The world does not think alike. And a missionary has to know the mindset of the people that he's preaching to. He has to be able to break through those conceived constructs and he has to deal with man on his grounds. He doesn't have to use those constructs, but but he has to understand that I may be dealing with thousands of years of ingrained culture and he needs wisdom. Preaching the gospel is always challenging, but when you preach it cross-culturally, it is even the more challenging. Now please understand, the message is the same. You understand that? We're still going to get to the cross and the blood and Jesus Christ and the gospel is the same, but, but to make it understandable, the missionary has to know there are pre-existing notions that have to be addressed. And by the way, that's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that it answers all three worldviews. You don't need one answer for the Buddhists and one answer for the Far East. Now I'm going to tell you something, that Jesus Christ is the answer to every heart cry of every human being that has ever lived. Doesn't matter what religion, doesn't matter what culture that you live in. The gospel is the same. Jesus Christ is the same. And he answers all three of those problems. Uh, Guilt, guilt. Do you know what a man who bears the weight of the guilt of his sin on his soul wants more than anything. Innocence. He wishes he could be innocent again. Wishes that he could somehow go back. Why was he so foolish as to do that? Guilt makes him remorseful for what he has done. He wishes a thousand times that he could wind the clock back and go back and not have to pay the penalty and the weight of my guilt. He stands before a judge and he pleads for mercy, promises that he'll turn his life around if there's just can be mercy found in the law. He understands that the law is supreme and he has violated it. He understands that his number one problem is that he is Guilty. He is guilty. And the court's only determination is guilt or innocence. And when guilt, when guilt is the dominant feeling of man, when it is the dominant view of man, then innocence is his greatest desire because innocence through forgiveness is the only way to erase the guilt. 
When he's guilty, he wants to be innocent. Do you know the greatest news that you can give to a man who feels the weight of guilt on his soul is that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for your sin and he will forgive you if you'll trust him. Guilt means that a penalty has to be paid to make things right and to make restitution. And Jesus has paid it all, all to Him I owe. And there is forgiveness and there is reconciliation and there is justification. And there I say there is innocence in Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful message to a guilty man that the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you. We'll cleanse you from your sin and you can stand before God Almighty not as guilty but as righteous and holy. What about fear? What about shame? Do you know what a person who feels shame of his sin wants more than anything? He wants honor. He wants dignity. Adam and Eve. They had dignity and honor. Made in the image of God, but that image is marred by the fall. And they knew it. And they immediately tried to cover their nakedness because they were ashamed, making fig leaves, making aprons of fig leaves, so ashamed of what they were and what they'd done that they began to cast blame at one another. And, and then on the serpent, trying to divert the blame from themselves. When a person has disgraced himself, when a person feels shame, here's what he wants to do. He wants to hide. He wants to run away. He wants to get behind a tree. He wants to put a covering off. He wants to hide his face. He wants to blame somebody else. But the greatest news that you can give somebody who feels the shame of his sin is that Jesus has taken the shame of our sin upon himself. And he not only forgives the guilt of sin, but he removes the shame of our sin. He bestows honor where there is no honor. We are the people of God. At one time, we were not a people. There is forgiveness of sin, but there is also adoption of sons in Jesus Christ. That's honor is what that is. It's interesting that in the ministry of Christ, Jesus reached out to people whom society had shunned and he restored the honor that they had lost. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus a hated man. He's a tax collector for the enemy. The Romans, what did Jesus say? Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today to dine with you. And the Middle Eastern mind said, that's honor. I'm going to honor you by coming and sitting at your table. That's an honorable thing. The religious leaders brought a woman caught in adultery to Jesus. Such shame and such guilt. He told her, go and sin no more. He didn't condemn her. The worst, the worst thing that could happen to a man in the Middle Eastern culture was that he'd be found, found uh, uh, declared a leper because it's a shameful thing. He is cut off from society. He is an untouchable. But when Jesus healed the leper, he didn't just heal them, but he touched the leper. He touched the leper because he wants them to know, I'm not taking care of just the disease, but I'm restoring the dignity and the honor that you lost in the disease. Gives you honor. There are people around the world who have been literally cut off from their family for becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. Their community is so ashamed of them that they disown them. Nobody hired. They can't get a job. They're treated as a dead person if they are not outright killed. But when you get saved, 
you're brought into a brand new family. There is no caste system in the family of God. There is no lower class citizen. When you get saved, you come in as a full son with all the privileges of sonship. You are a child of God. What a great honor that is. When the prodigal son came back home, he said, just treat me as one of your servants. But to do that would be a shameful thing. And the father said, no, put the robe on him, a ring and a cap, and threw a feast for him because I am restoring to him the honor that he owes." when he became the prodigal. Fear. There's a world that operates on the fear of the unknown. They pray to spirits. They sacrifice hoping to buy protection. They have charms and they have shrines and superstitions. They believe the spirits can harm them. They live in fear. And do you know what a person who lives in fear wants more than anything else? He wants power. Power to break the curse. Power to be free from the evil spirit that torments him. Power, power to break the bondage that he lives in. And so he goes to a witch doctor or a pagan priest because he thinks that he has power over the evil spirits. And I'm going I'm to pay him some money. I hope that he prays to, to use his power against the evil spirits and keep them away from me. Do you know the greatest news that a man who lives in superstition and fear of evil spirits, do you know the greatest news that you can give him is that Jesus Christ has broken the power of sin and the power of hell and he has no need to fear anymore. But as many as received him, to them gave he Power, power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. It's Wednesday night, but I feel like preaching just a minute. Colossians, 2 Timothy 1. But God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinance that was against us, which was contrary to us. And took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And, and having spoiled, spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them open, triumphantly, open, openly over them. He has broken the power of Satan and broken the power of sin and broken the power of hell. When a person in a culture of fear gets saved, he is changing his allegiance from a power that he feared to what he believes is a higher power. And the love of Christ drives out all fear. The love of Christ tells him that God is not a tyrant that has to be bribed and has to be pleased. No, God is a loving Father that wants you as his child. And the cross demonstrates that the power of evil has been broken and the power of sin has been broken. And there is no evil spirit that can harm you. Power. Power. Every culture. There's a dominant worldview. Every worldview, every culture is influenced by all of the worldviews. A culture that is driven by shame and honor still feels guilt. He still has fear. But there's a dominant worldview. When you are convicted of your sin the one that was most dominant for you was probably guilt. But here's what you found out. That Jesus is the answer for your guilt. He's the answer for your shame. He's the answer for your fear. He brings forgiveness which marks you as innocent. He bestows honor where sin has brought nothing but shame. He drives away fear by the power of his love. Here's the takeaway. The missionary has one message. But he has to present it to a culture that does not think like he does. If he dishonors a Middle Eastern man, 
they'll never have a chance to win him to Christ. A high-pressured evangelist in the States can have a campaign and pump out the professions of faith, but if he doesn't deal with the guilt of sin, then there's going to be no peace to that man. And so the takeaway tonight is how do you pray for the missionary? Pray that God gives him utterance, knowing what to say, how to say it, when to say it, because the missionary is on the battlefield for souls. He needs courage. Paul said, pray that God gives me boldness. But he also needs wisdom. It's just a little introduction in the worldviews and how the world thinks. And the missionary may not be able to do over there what he does here. Methods are many. Principles are few. Methods may change, but principles never do. And when you pray for those missionaries on that list, would you pray that God would give them utterance to speak into the hearts of the people that he is working with. Heavenly